Good morning to you. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We're not streaming today because I'm actually in studio in Atlanta, believe it or not. Uh, I had to come up here uh, yesterday. I got a uh, thing I got to go to today. We'll all be socially distanced, I'm sure. By the way, that reminds me. Uh, So yesterday they had the press conference of the U.S. attorney in in Minnesota. (laughs) It was the funniest thing. So they all go outside with masks on. I got to just describe this for you. It's an outdoor press conference. And she stands at the podium. They've all got their masks on. And they literally all stretch their arms out to their sides uh, to ensure that they're all six feet away. So everybody's like fingertip to fingertip and then distances a little bit further. And then once everyone's made sure they're all spread out like that, and then they turn to the side to make sure the person behind them is the same way, then they all take their masks off and have the press conference. Like, what on earth? This is like some junior high gymnasium stunt that your PE teacher would make you do. Next, they were going to do jump checks or something. <laughs> just, it was the funniest thing. And once everybody, she looks around, everybody socially just, and then she just kind of nods and they take off their mask. I was just like, good gracious. So I'm coming into the studio. And, and for those of you who, who haven't been into Atlanta in a while, God bless you. But so I'm coming in and they've got, you know, those overhead DOT signs. I'll tell you where traffic is. And I, it's like they've let the interns take them over. One of them, I, I don't understand why the signs that are over the interstate tell you to keep, keep six feet apart. I'm pretty sure that if you're driving at 70 miles an hour, you should stay more than six feet apart from the car in front of you. But they want you to socially distance six feet apart on the interstate. And then they actually say on the signs, or we'll tell your mom. They literally said that. And and the other one is wash your hands like your mother's watching. Uh, drive like your mother's in the car. <laughs> Someone, clearly, clearly somebody has too much time on their hands. All right, all right, all right. Uh, a, a new experience. I, so I went, I, I got up this morning. I had to stay at a hotel last night. And there's no, there's no anything in the hotel. You can't get, the vending machines are closed. The, uh, the, the restaurant was closed. The bar was closed. Room service was closed. Nothing. You had the little Keurig thing in your, in your hotel room if you wanted coffee in the morning. Otherwise, you had to go out. So I decide, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go out this morning to get breakfast. Well, Panera now doesn't open until 8 o'clock. Uh, there's a Starbucks, but it's drive through only, and, and Starbucks is garbage anyway. Uh, and I like to get milk and, and a little sugar in my coffee. And I wasn't going to go through the line. Starbucks, which wrapped around the building. It's just it's really hard when you're traveling these days. I, you know, i got to tell you, I—, I I really do consider myself to have been one of the more reasonable voices in this whole thing about sheltering in place and why we're doing it and bending the curb. And, and I, it, more and more of this stuff is really starting to aggravate me. Uh, the, the Moving the goalposts, like, for example, the governor of Georgia yesterday has a press conference and says we're going to continue reopening. And the press is hounding him. But, 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 but the cases are going back up. The cases are, We should all shelter in place some more. You know, he. how many times has the governor had a press conference and he said, when we reopen, we expect to see cases go back up. As we increase testing, as people get out, we're going to see some cases go up. But this was always about uh, making sure that the curve was flattened and hospital capacity was taken care of. Well, hospital capacity is taken care of. The curve was flattened. 
it, it's time to go back out there. You know, I, I'm actually kind of amazed that the the Karens of the media world are not in Minneapolis yelling at the rioters that they're not wearing face masks. That surely they should be wearing face masks out there. Uh, the rioting is okay. Y'all, this is so bizarre. Ali Velshi on MSNBC uh, is standing. Uh, let me describe the scene for you. This is an MSNBC business reporter. He's covering the rioting of Minneapolis. He is literally standing in front of a burning building with looters. I, I, I want to be clear in how I characterize it. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it is not. Uh, it is not generally speaking unruly. But fires have been started, and and there is a crowd that is relishing that. There is a deep sense of grievance and complaint here. So he's literally he's in front of a burning building with rioters and looters. There are fires all around him. He's like this. This is generally a peaceful protest. The the people here have a sense of grievance. You you think I so? Let let's let's talk about this for just a moment. And you know I I despise the phrase white privilege. The reason I despise the phrase white privilege is it is used disparagingly to blanketly claim that you have some benefit in society that puts you in an advantage to everyone else's disadvantage, and therefore you must give something up. It is a a socially Marxist phrase designed by social justice warriors to, out of the gate, without knowing anything about you as an individual, make you be bad. That does not mean, however, we should not appreciate that, that by and large, as a general rule of thumb, uh, if you are white in this country, uh, you will be seen differently often by law enforcement and others. Uh, and I, I've got plenty of friends in the black community. I've seen this uh, firsthand. I, I've, I've told the story before. I was in Washington, D.C., uh, hailing a cab. There was a, a black gentleman down the, the other corner of the street. He had been there before me and couldn't get a cab. I flagged the first cab that came past, and it pulled right over. And, I mean, he was really angry about it, and I gave him the cab. And the cab driver, who was uh, Middle Eastern, I believe, got mad at me for giving him the giving the black man the cab. And it was it was really I've experienced this in in several cases, and it's really eye opening when you see it. And and it it is you can say and I listen I I've, I've got friends who will say this I'll say well look at the look at the behaviors in the black community and in, in relation to crime and and propensity in the black community for for violence and drugs and things like that I I know people who will say this and in fact uh, at one point in my life I thought that as well and then I realized wait this isn't really fair if I want to be judged by individually then I should not be judging people collectively and 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 I don't think we should. We should not be saying, well, because of uh, gangs and drugs and, and violence in the black community, of course the police are going to take a different approach towards uh, black people than white people. I, I, I don't think we can do that if we want to be judged individually uh, because what we're essentially saying in that regard is the same thing that the people who say white privilege are saying, and that is that collectively out of the gate – you have some benefit or disadvantage. 
And I think we all need to be judged individually. I, I think that's the conservative position. I think that's the Christian position. And so that gets me to what's happening in Minnesota. If you saw the press conferences there, man, the, the, the Minnesota governor, the Minneapolis mayor, the police chief, the district attorney, they all need to go. You have this, this state uh, district attorney who says basically, and, and if you haven't seen the video of George Floyd, we now have uh, additional footage from a store security camera. Uh, Floyd was accused of resisting arrest. A video camera from a store where this happened showed that he didn't appear to be resisting arrest. He's laid down on the ground by a police officer who puts his knee on George Floyd's neck. George Floyd uh, says he can't breathe. He's got an underlying condition. He goes to the hospital. He ultimately dies. Now, there are people out there who say that uh, you can't blame the police officer for that. He had an underlying condition. When I was in law school, one of the things we had to learn was the uh, thin skull eggshell plaintiff. The thin skull eggshell plaintiff. It was a case. I cannot remember the name of the case, but essentially the person had a genetic condition that caused them to have a thin skull like an eggshell. And they were in a wreck and they were seriously impaired as a result. They might have died. And the person was sued and argued that in a normal circumstance, this wreck would not have caused a lot of injury. And so the the defendant should not be burdened with this man's death because the guy had an underlying condition. And the, the court ruling was essentially you take the person as you find them. If they've got a thin, thin skull eggshell condition and you're in a wreck with them and they die, well, it's not on them. It's on you. You take the person as you found them. If, if George Floyd has an underlying condition and you treat him as you treated him with a, a knee on his neck so he can barely breathe and it causes him cardiac con, a cardiac condition that flares up an existing condition and he dies, well, that's not on George Floyd. It was <clears> – <throat> It was very bizarre yesterday to see the prosecutor in Minneapolis come out and say, well, there are uh, – we're not going to charge the police officer with anything because th- there's another viewpoint here and another perspective and more information uh, that makes it look like he was doing his job. And now listen, if, if that's true, if that's true, okay, my, my default is to trust the system of, of law enforcement in this country. And, and I think that should be everyone's default, and it's not, but I think it should. But I think if you're going to have a press conference and say something like that, you at least need to provide what the evidence is. I mean, essentially what happened yesterday is the prosecutor said, we're not going to charge the police officer because we have other evidence that shows that George Floyd was up to no good. Trust us. We're not going to share it with you. And I think that's problematic. I also think the rioting, by the way, is, is deeply problematic. Here's the president of the George Floyd situation. No, I haven't, but I feel very, very badly. It's a very shocking sight. Well, Bill and I were talking about it before. It's one of the reasons Bill's here right now, uh, because, as you know, we're very much involved. And I've asked the attorney general, FBI, and the attorney general to take a very strong look and to see what went on, because that was a very, very bad thing that I saw. I saw it last night, and I didn't like it. 
And it, it continues today. Here's CNN confronting the Minneapolis mayor who has done a terrible job in all of this. I have Mr. Mayor, Mayor, there were people out there tonight that were saying things like, where are the police right now? Where are the firefighters right now? Where's the National Guard right now? Those are all fair questions. Uh, Where were the police, firefighters, and National Guard to protect that third precinct and to protect that neighborhood? As you already know, there were more than a few fires that uh, our firefighters had to put out. Uh, There were more than a few incidents of looting that our officers had to attend to. Uh, We are doing absolutely everything that we can to keep the peace. Uh, We have officers that are that are stationed uh, are around the city in several different locations. We have, uh, in, in many instances, assistance from the state uh, that to prevent looting at some of these community institutions that we know will be necessary to get through this pandemic. Um, you know, this is one of the most difficult situations that our city has been through. Uh, I, I'm not going to stand up in here and tell you that there are easy answers to it because there are not. Uh, What I can tell you uh, is that through this pandemic, um, Chief Arredondo has my 100% support. Chief Friedel and the fire department has my 100% support. We're going to be united as a city. So where is the National Guard and how is it being deployed? Who's got that control? Who's making those calls? So many of these questions you're going to want to direct to our chief who has been working consistently uh, with uh, Harrington from the state. Uh, And many of the National Guard, as I mentioned, were uh, stationed and are being stationed in locations to help prevent some of the looting that we've seen. Okay. Um, All right. The mayor of Minneapolis doesn't seem to really know what's going on in his city, it seems. He, by the way, he also uh, arrested a CNN reporter and, and her crew overnight. They've just been released from jail in the last little while. This whole thing here is a disaster made of the incompetence of the government of Minnesota and Minneapolis. It's amazing to watch liberals twist this. This is a highly progressive city with a highly progressive mayor, with a highly progressive governor, and somehow the left is trying to twist this to blame the president. They will blame the president for everything. I I, I do ponder this while we go to commercial break. Ponder this, though. I, I do wonder if it is possible for Vice President Biden to take the position that uh, he will bring calm to chaos and maybe we'll benefit by that because I, I, I a number of friends of mine who I talk to, who I consider kind of reliable weather veins of where the, the winds of the country are blowing – they just seem exhausted right now. They they just seem exhausted by it all. That that this isn't sustainable, and that that maybe even though that they they like the president, they'll vote for the president. They're thinking, you know, maybe Biden will bring us some calm if he gets elected. And I I don't think that's a position the president and his team want to be in. And the president and his team right now seem to need to find a message that can last beyond one tweet. All right, so it, it, this this is this is just bizarre. Um, the the Minnesota State Patrol has just tweeted this out in the last hour. In the course of clearing the streets and restoring order at Lake Street and Snelling Avenue, 
Four people were arrested by state patrol troopers, including three members of a CNN crew. The three were released once they were confirmed to be members of the media. Uh, If you were watching CNN at the time, you didn't actually see that. Uh, If you were watching CNN at the time, what you actually saw was the CNN crew holding up their press credentials. They've got their CNN camera equipment. They've got their CNN microphone, and they still get arrested by the police. How many rioters take the time to go out and get a a TV camera and a microphone with a CNN flag wearing their CNN jacket and get press credentials from CNN before they go out and riot, uh, it, man, these people. It, this is just this is this is crazy talk uh, from CNN. But now I, I wonder. So they're putting this on. Uh, they're putting this on Twitter. The Minnesota State Patrol. Will Twitter fact check this? Will Will Twitter put a a label on this? Because Twitter has today decided to go after uh, the president of the United States yet again and and label some of his tweets as as likely to cause violence. They're preventing people from tweeting. It's it's actually kind of ridiculous um, that they're doing this with him. The the President tweeted this, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Waltz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. That's the president's tweet. Twitter put this on top. This tweet violated the Twitter rules about glorifying violence. However, Twitter has determined it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain accessible. So you can't comment and you can't like it. Uh, it, it doesn't look like you can even retweet it. Uh, this is just going to exacerbate the fight with the president and Twitter. The president, by the way, coming up with his Section 230 order, and there's going to be a problem. Um, it doesn't actually appear that the president's executive order will do any good. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it looks more and more like the president's proposal to essentially get uh, two federal agencies the president controls to ask a federal agency the president does not directly control, the Federal Communications Commission, to waive Section 230. Well, first of all, I don't think the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, is going to do that. Uh, and and second, I don't think he actually can do that. And third, I think that Republicans are playing with fire if they try to do this. Now, this is getting Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook in, in, in a little bit of hot water because he dared to go on Fox News and say he doesn't think that these uh, companies should be um, – that these companies should be the arbiters of what is true. And I agree. And now Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren are coming after Mark Zuckerberg for daring to go on Fox and say that. This whole thing is just just petty. And essentially, you've got the Republicans. Look, there are legitimate grievances against Twitter. There really are. Uh, but I think trying to get rid of Section 230 is a bad idea. And, and all of a sudden, the, the, all sorts of people are suddenly experts. I, I used to actually uh, deal with this, not just as a, as a law and as a lawyer, but as someone who ran an online site. And I want to explain to you why you don't want to get rid of Section 230, 
uh, the way some Republicans do. They're they're you're genuinely playing with fire when you do this, and ultimately, what's going to happen is you yourselves will face more censorship if you get rid of this. And I don't know that the president understands the situation uh, as well as he should. So we should talk about it when we come back. I'm not sending out a recipe today. You've you've got three of them this week, but I'll send out more next week. Uh, The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-973-7425. Let's talk about the, the boringest topic of the day. Section 230. Does that not sound sexy or what? Let's talk Section 230. All right. Let me play you some audio here from from the president of the United States uh, talking about Section 230. Currently, social media giants like Twitter receive an unprecedented liability shield based on the theory that they're a neutral platform, which they're not, not an editor with a viewpoint. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. They have a shield. They can do what they want. They have a shield. They're not going to have that shield. My executive order further instructs the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, to prohibit social media companies from engaging in any deceptive acts or practices affecting commerce. This authority resides in Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act. I think you know it pretty well. Most of you know it very well. I would think you know it quite well, right? Additionally, I'm directing the Attorney General to work cooperatively with the states. He's going to be working very much and very closely in cooperation with the states to enforce their own laws against such deceptive business practices. The states have broad and powerful authority to regulate in this arena, and they'll be doing it also, and we encourage them to do it if they see exactly as we've been seeing. It's uh, what they're doing is tantamount to monopoly, you can say. It's tantamount to uh, taking over the airwaves. Can't let it happen. Otherwise, we're not going to have a democracy. We're not going to have anything to do with a republic. Finally, I'm directing my administration to develop policies and procedures to ensure taxpayer dollars are not going in any social media company that repress free speech. Shields! Shields! She's giving them all she's got, gotten. Uh, he's talking about these shields for social media companies, and I need to explain this one to you. Because I, it's so, there's there's a lot that's being said out there. Listen, I run an online website called The Resurgent. I actually deleted the comment section because commenters on the internet are trash. Uh, and and I just decided that that you know it's it, it, the I always say that the president being elected is like the internet's comment section becoming president of the United States because uh, have you ever have you ever gone on a I mean e- even your your basic like newspaper that has a comment section it it just turns into trash. But here's the thing: if you have a blog, you know a a web blog, a blog, you you've got an online diary that you yourself set up, and you have a comment section. What Section 230 of the of the Communications Decency Act does is it gives you yourself protection. 
gives you protection. It doesn't just give Twitter and Facebook and Google and, and all the others protections. It gives you protection so that you can't be sued for what other people say. Now, now let's, let me break this down. Um, if, if the New York Times, let's take the New York Times. The New York Times is a publisher, and the New York Times also allows reader comments to its stories. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does not protect the New York Times from its own writing. So if the New York Times does a big story, like, for example, uh, accuses Sarah Palin of inspiring uh, the attempted assassination of Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona, as they did a while back, uh, and Sarah Palin sues them, the New York Times cannot uh, claim Section 230 as a defense because they are liable for their own writing, their own content. But if someone goes into a story about Gabrielle Giffords and leaves a comment and says Sarah Palin is the one who did this, the New York Times is not liable for that comment. The New York Times is not liable for what third parties put on their websites as comments. So I run theresurgent.com. If I write a piece on theresurgent.com and I say something uh, defamatory of someone else, I can get sued. But if someone comes into the comments section and says something defamatory, I can't get sued. Now, what I can do is I can get a request by some by the uh, that person's lawyer to say, give me all the information you have on whoever left that comment, and I would have to hand it over. But I myself could not be sued for that person's comment. That's what Section 230 does. And... What the president seems to be suggesting is that if Twitter gets in the habit of editorializing over other people's comments, that they should not have Section 230 uh, liability. Okay, uh, but that's not the way the law works, and the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, doesn't really have the power to do anything. So what the, the president's executive order does is it asks the Commerce Department, which he has direct control over, to ask the FCC to change the the interpretation of Section 230. But the FCC can't change the interpretation of Section 230 because Section 230 is actually a law. It, it actually has a plain meaning, and that plain meaning uh, gives you and me and everyone else who runs an internet website protection from commenters doing stupid things. Now, what this is all about is Twitter deciding to editorialize above the president's comments and, and lock out some of the president's comments and other things. Uh, he's been wanting to do this for a while, though. This has been uh, coming to a head because conservatives rightly recognize that social media companies lean to the left. Listen, let's go to Google for a minute and, and the Google search engine. So Google search engine is based on an algorithm. And inside Google, the Alphabet Gang, the feminists, uh, the, the, the Antifa folks, the Black Lives Matters folks, they all believe that you need a, an intersectional uh, reality of voices shaping the algorithm. That if you don't have enough gay people and enough transgender people and enough bisexual people and enough lesbians and enough black people and enough Asians and enough Muslims uh, and, and enough Zoroastrians all helping shape the algorithm within Google – that Google will miss a diverse array of voices when you search. 
But these same people believe that 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 uh, Judeo-Christian white men are bad and conservatives are evil, and and they don't want them to be a part of the algorithm. They don't want them shaping the algorithm because my goodness, you might actually get some Hayek or some Milton Friedman in there. Can't have that in in the day and age of social justice. Got to go to got to redirect to Lenin and, and Stalin, not to not to. Reagan and Hayek and, and Friedman. No, no, can't do that. So listen, if if all of these social justice warriors believe you need this intersectionally diverse group of minorities to shape the algorithm so that their voices are heard, but don't let conservatives do it, well, that seems to suggest that they can shape the algorithm to hide information from conservatives. They can shape the algorithm so that when people are looking for information on Donald Trump, that they only find the worst possible information on the president. So they can shape the information you get access to, to ensure that you see progressive sources over conservative sources and left worldviews over right worldviews. By their own logic, you need some level of diversity. By their own logic, you need some level of of shaping the algorithm uh, to to access, to ensure fair play, to ensure that conservative voices aren't silenced. So the, the president makes a good point based on the left's own reasoning here. The problem is that you go after Section 230, you're not just going after it for Twitter and Facebook. You're going after it for you and me. You're, 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 you're hurting all of us. You're going to hurt conservatives ultimately. Now, the president and his team says, well, all these people are, are social justice warriors. They're left-wingers. They hate conservatives, and he's right. But they're also private corporations, and they don't have a First Amendment obligation. They're not a utility. You don't have to use Twitter or Facebook. In fact, your life will indisputably be better if you don't use Twitter. Now, this is shaping up to – there's a fundamental divide in all this. Mark Zuckerberg had the audacity to go on Fox where he knew he would see Republicans. But I think we've been pretty clear on on what I think the right approach is, which is – uh, that I don't think that uh, Facebook or, or Internet platforms in general should be um, arbiters of truth. I think that's a kind of a dangerous line to get down to in terms of um, deciding what is what, what is true and what isn't. Oh, yes, that's right. Now, let me play the, this other extended clip. Look, I, 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 I'd have to understand what they actually would intend to do, but... Um, but it, but in general, I, I think a, a government choosing to, to censor a platform um, because they're worried about censorship doesn't exactly strike me as the, um, the, the, the right uh, reflex there. But in general, you know, we're, we're in, in the platforms in general, I think, um, you know, have this, this difficult balance of, you know, we, we try very hard to give people a voice. Um, and we get a lot of criticism um, from some people who think that um, that we censor too much um, when it when it comes to taking down speech that we think could lead to uh, to to uh, harm. But then on the other hand, we just all day long get a lot of 
uh, feedback and, and, and critique from folks who, who basically think that we leave too much content up and, and that um, and, and that we're, we're not being uh, we're, we're not taking into account our responsibility on, on on that side would be the concern and you know people think that we're you know for somehow doing this because we um, you know, I, I don't know. We, we just don't care about the impact or something like that. But it's just wrong. The, the reality is, is that we try to be very principled. We we care deeply about giving people a voice um, and empowering individuals. That's a big part of why I started the company. I don't think that you build a company that gives people a voice like this if you don't believe that individuals having a voice is a good thing. I tend to agree with Zuckerberg on this. I don't think that these social media companies should be fact checkers and, and should tell us what is true. But I also don't think it is a good policy for the federal government to decide that they need to censor private companies that they believe are censoring people. And and I do have to be honest with you. Some of what's happening here, and, and some of you won't like me for saying this, but some of what's going on here is grievance porn on the right. What I mean by that is there have been instances where people have exaggerated or or fabricated claims of censorship on social media to try to rile up the president and Republican political leaders. And there is some truth in, in some people being turned. I mean, Alex Jones is, is a perfect example. Uh, Alex Jones was thrown off social media. And if Facebook did it, Apple did it, uh, Twitter did it, and that kind of became the rallying cry moment there where he was building an audience on these platforms. But again, they are not his platform. They, they are their own platform. Alex Jones can go out and, and build an app and get it on people's phones. Apple's not uh, blocking his app from a phone. That would be an antitrust issue for Apple if they did that, so they won't do that. Uh, but they're just not choosing to stream his content over their Apple TV service. It's these companies, and, and you don't have to use the company. You can go find a different company, and you can say, well, that's hard. But here's the thing. I, if I could offer a solution to the Republicans on the Section 230 stuff, don't go after Section 230. Section 230 protects large companies and small companies, and it's very clear from the way it's being talked about in the White House that they don't seem to understand the implications of getting rid of Section 230. And I don't know that they can write it in such a way. Josh Hawley, I think, from Missouri wants to try to write legislation that will curtail it. Uh, it will put, basically put a cap on the size of a company uh, where, our, where when that company exceeds that size – then suddenly Section 230 goes away in, in certain cases. I, I think that's what he wants to do. Uh, what I would suggest is instead go after the means by which these companies got so big through intellectual property and otherwise and allow others to very easily create companies to compete. This is one of the issues with these companies is they start acquiring patents, and most of them are software patents. And so you can come up with an idea and code it differently from what they did but get the same effect, and they'll sue you. And so I, I would suggest uh, there are ways to deal with these companies that involves uh, going after intellectual property uh, disputes and going after intellectual property concerns and destabilizing these companies and allowing people to build uh, fair competitors to these companies. 
by not having them be sued and attacked and and purchased and and silenced as opposed to trying to go after Section 230. There are ways to make these things happen to address the president's concerns without getting rid of Section 230, which I think will in the long run wind up hurting conservatives more than leaving things as they are. No one should defend Twitter. Twitter is a group of, of super progressives who have a progressive worldview, who really don't like the fact that conservatives are pretty dominant on their platform. There's, there's no reason to defend Twitter. But taking away Section 230 has broader implications than Twitter, and that's the problem. So let me ask you, if you're on the fence over what the president is doing, uh, with what he wants to do with Twitter and uh, Facebook and Google and YouTube and the like, and also set up a commission within the FTC to track fairness and stuff, uh, ask yourself a question. Uh, who do you want to oversee all of this when Joe Biden is president? I mean, because I, I, the way to game this out is because, you know, by the way, um, the left wants Section 230 to go away. Progressives, this is where the president and progressives are largely aligned. Uh, they all want Section 230 to disappear. The left wants Section 230 to disappear because they believe it would force Facebook and Twitter to take down all sorts of conservative voices. Uh, they believe if you get rid of Section 230, the president's ad campaigns wouldn't be allowed on Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, so he, he, the way to figure this out, how it would work, is just ask yourself, uh, who do you want in charge of this Internet Censorship Commission when Joe Biden is president? And if you can't think of someone you think that would be good, maybe you shouldn't support the policy. Would he put Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in charge of it? That would that would be kind of problematic. Now, I, I want to go full circle here, and I want to return to the Minneapolis thing because i got to play you. In uh, full disclosure to Charlie, this is where I'm going to play that audio. I, I try never to get him uh, on multiple days in a row to uh, cut up Don Lemon audio because it kind of drives him insane, and I get it. Uh, but this is this is where I have to play Don Lemon. I'm fighting for my liberty. These people are fighting for their liberty. So if you can understand wanting a haircut, not wanting to wear a mask, wanting to go in a store and be able to cough on anyone, wanting to wear, in one instance, a Klan hood to a grocery store because you thought that was your mask to protect people from the coronavirus because you were so upset that you couldn't go to the store without a mask, then you should understand these people who are frustrated and who are protesting on the streets of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and in other parts of this country, because they are fighting as an American, just like you, for their liberty. Liberty is not just for white people. It is for black people. It is for Asian people. It is for all Americans, Hispanic, black, white, brown, yellow, all of us. It is for all Americans. So if you're going to fight for your liberty, fight for these people's liberty as well. Uh, yeah, first of all, can, can I just note that Don Lemon sounds like uh, he's one of those people who has encountered a deaf person and thinks if he just speaks louder, they will understand. I said that liberty, liberty is for everyone. Um, they're fighting for their liberty. They're, they're fighting for what, what, where's the fight? They're not fighting. They're rioting. 
There was no fighting in Minneapolis. What did the Target ever do to them to cause them to take sledgehammers to the cash registers? I mean, was the target out there, what was the target in Minneapolis, was it systematically uh, rounding up black people? What, what was it? What, what did that flat screen TV ever do to that guy? They're, fight, they're not fighting. They're rioting. They're, they're ransacking the place. They're burning the place down. That's not fighting for liberty. That's not fighting for liberty. Like, for example, if, if, if Charlie were to take a sledgehammer and smash his laptop this morning because he is, is he's fighting for his liberty to be free of hearing from Don Lemon, to be free of Don Lemon clips. I, I would kind of get that. I, I would kind of get if he smashed his laptop this morning. Don't smash your laptop, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would kind of get it at least. But this, I mean, what did the Target cash register ever do to these people? They're, they're, they're smashing that. They're, they're burning. I, I kind of get going after the police station. I don't justify it. They should have done it, but I kind of get that one. I don't, I don't get the, the, the stores and the restaurants and, and the other things that they're all burning down. That's not fighting. That's rioting. Rioting is not fighting for liberty. And by the way, did they not vote for a lot of these people in charge? Did, did they not vote for the mayor of Minneapolis? Did, did they not do that? Did, I mean, what, what am I missing here? It very much seems like we're, we're missing part of the picture here. And that's kind of a problem, I think, when it comes to all of this stuff, uh, that we're, there's more to it than what the media wants to portray and, and what people like Don Lemon want to portray and, and the excuses they want to make. Like Ali Velshi uh, is standing in front of a burning building with rioters tearing the place down. He's like, well, this is a peaceful protest. No, it's not a peaceful protest when the buildings are on fire. You know, you can be outraged by what happened to George Floyd and be outraged by the rioting. It, it, it is possible to not defend either one of these. I'm starting to wonder if we're going to have a baseball season. I, I'm, I'm trying not to get depressed about it. But man, the Major League Baseball uh, owners—they're just—they're—they're they're negotiating against themselves now, in addition to the players. And I don't know that it's going to happen, uh, which is sad. I just got my Braves license plate. I'm. This is aggravating. In any event, in any event, we got to move on. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is eight seven seven nine seven Eric eight seven seven. Nine seven three seven four two five. If you want to call in, I need to talk about what happened here in Georgia yesterday with the governor of the state of Georgia, Brian Kemp, holding a press conference. It's his weekly coronavirus briefing. He's been calling it, and notice it doesn't get the fawning attention of the national press corps because they're not in Georgia. Uh, they they fawn over Andrew Cuomo, and and just just I mean, it's it's kind of sick. But Kemp won't get the credit. In fact, uh, Brian Kemp is getting attacked by the national press. In large part, he's getting attacked by the national press because there is a rise in cases in Georgia. Now, I've been telling you it was coming. You could see it in the moving average. Notice how the media held it back until it got into the moving average. We, we're actually two, three days away from it being officially in the moving average, and I assure you we're going to have all these big stories out. But let, let me give you the numbers. So on um, – this is somewhat funny here. On May 18th, there are 960 uh, confirmed cases. 
that is the highest we have seen in the state of Georgia. The, the second highest was April 20th, which had been the high day, and that was 944. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the other day when I gave you the number, it was over 990, it was 994, and then it was 981, and then it was 972 yesterday. Now, it's, we're down to 960. The reason is because there was a, the, the governor said yesterday, there was a huge backlog of tests, and a lot of those tests are from earlier days, and as they clear out on May 18th, they're reassigning them to the day that the person was actually infected, they believe, not the day the test was conducted, uh, which was May 18th. So they're shifting things around. So we may see this number go a little uh, further down, but it's still a big spike. And it's not just because of uh, a massive testing uh, or a massive backlog of tests. It's also because of an increase of tests, and it's also because of testing certain communities. Nursing homes and migrant workers. Nursing homes are a, a rather big deal. And the nursing homes are a, a, a breeding ground for the virus. And one of the troubling things has been the concern, much like with prisons, and we saw this in, in part of Ohio, that you'll go in. You will uh, you'll either bring the infection into a nursing home and start killing the old people or the old people are infected and give it to you and you take it back out into the community and spread it. That's the problem. But what the situation we're seeing now is that it, it appears because so many people are now taking precautions, we're actually beginning to see uh, this is it's going down in nursing homes now. Um, it's still there. And that's causing the spike, uh, but we're starting to see a slowdown. Now, the the good thing here as well is that uh, from the data we are seeing thus far, we are not seeing spread in major metropolitan areas. So, for example, I'm, I'm pulling up. You can go – if you text the word data to 33777, you can actually see the graph for yourself. Uh, there is a graph, and it says Georgia, and then if you click it – you can click county by county and see the county by county numbers. And so, for example, uh, Gwinnett County, Georgia, the the cases look like uh, it almost looks like they're going back up. And uh, May 18th, May 20th, we're seeing 69 K. Um, we're seeing 90 cases on May 18th. We're seeing 91 cases on May 20th. The moving average seems to be going back up there. That's a bit of a problem. Hall County, the Gainesville area, you've got a definite decline in Hall County. And let's see, uh, Cobb County. Let, let's look at Cobb County. These are all metro Atlanta areas. Uh, you've got in, in Cobb County, it's, it's plateaued, it plateaued and on, on the down slope. Now let's go to, um, Clark County, Athens in Athens, you're, you've, you're plateaued. It looks actually like there may be a bit of an incremental rise in, in the Clark County area. Let's do Habersham County. There's a method of my madness here. Bear with me. Uh, in Habersham, it looks, you're going to have a little bump up. And then you're going to begin to decline again, and, and you're not actually having a ton of cases in Habersham County. Now, what about Floyd County? In Floyd, you're seeing a, a dramatic spike of 17 cases on May 14th. It almost looks like several waves in Floyd, and then it starts to go downhill again. Now, my, my, my reason for saying this is that every county in the state 
has a different path. Every county in the state is is showing uh, signs, though, that they're headed in the right direction. And the metro areas of the state are actually some of the better parts of the state. So, for example, in Chatham County, Savannah, you're actually seeing uh, the cases. It looks like the trend line has been going up a little bit. But we're not talking about a lot of cases. We're talking about on the high day, 17 cases in Chatham County. So the governor is looking at all this data. The health officials in the state are looking at all this data. And they've come to this conclusion that we actually are headed in the right direction. We're headed in the right direction for a couple of reasons. One, we've increased testing so much that it looks like we're seeing an increase and it has a lot to do not with community spread, but with an increase in testing. Two, uh, we know where the community spread is happening and it's in contained community. And a contained community spread is different from an open community spread. A contained community spread is, for example, a nursing home where it's spreading within the walls of the nursing home, but it's not leaving the nursing home with staff or with relatives who are coming into the nursing home. It's uh, nursing home patients are still sheltered in place. They're, they're not out and about. So you, you're not seeing a spread out in the community where these nursing homes are, which is another good thing. Uh, you're seeing it in the contained communities of migrant workers where in their communal and shared living areas, they are spreading the virus, but they're not spreading it into the community at large, nor into the overwhelming Hispanic community where they are, just among those that they live with. So uh, this is something that is totally manageable. And the governor wants to take the next steps to open further. And in taking the next step to open further, he's going to allow bars and nightclubs to reopen. There's a caveat, though. Bars and nightclubs are going to have to strictly limit the people. There's not going to be any karaoke in in your, your nightclub. And you're not going to be able to stand around drinking. You're going to have to ha- be at a table. And they will make some exceptions for people in socially distant areas to stand, but there are going to be temperature checks and, and employee face masks and sanitation and all that sort of stuff. There will be there are like 34 things that a bar and a nightclub have to do to reopen. Many of them financially will not be able to be in compliance to be able to reopen. And and some of them will. Now, live live music venues are going to have to stay closed. The governor does not want live music venues open possibly until July. Overnight uh, student camps, though, overnight summer camps will be allowed to be open. And it was a pretty comprehensive press conference. They pushed him yesterday. Reporters pushed him on the spike that we're going to see on the 18th. And the Dr. Toomey, the, who is respected by everyone, said it is uh, an in, from an increase in testing. There is a backlog of cases. And there is a, a, a spike in certain nursing homes in the state that they're aware of. And that's why we're seeing that and the migrant worker issue. So it's nothing really to panic about. Just be mindful of the situation. Be mindful of what's going on out there. Um, it's, yeah. The media wants to play this stuff up because, again, uh, so much of the media is partisan. And there there are real concerns out there in, in some of the press. That the, pre- the, the governor went out too soon. But let's be real honest here. Uh, the governor is putting us on an economic advantage compared to other states, and the data suggests he was right, and the data suggests it's not really spreading. So that's good. Now, as for the businesses that continue to be closed, one thing they may have to do is continue to go after the payroll protection program, and Congress looks like they're going to make some amendments to it. The House of Representatives surprisingly uh, passed legislation that was uh, actually authored by my friend Chip Roy from Texas, a Republican. 
conservative Republican and the Democrats let it through. It was co-authored with the Democrat, and it is a very small bill to fix the PPP program. So, for example, under the PPP program, 75% of the money has to go to payroll, 25% can go to utilities, rent, and the like. Uh, They would revise this to 60-40. must go to payroll, 40% must go to uh, utilities, rent, and things like that, uh, which was a big improvement. Also, uh, they would spread it out several more months uh, uh, without having to worry about payback or anything like that. Additionally, There's a supplemental piece of legislation floating in the Senate that would incentivize trying to get people to go back to work, uh, which is something we very much need uh, everybody to do is go back to work. And right now, a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines because they're getting paid so much to stay home. Here's Larry Kudlow. Well, I think uh, if you're referring to the cash bonuses and Senator Portman's idea, uh, it's something we're looking at very closely. And, um, you know, we may go with something like that. I don't want to button it down right now. I don't want to get ahead of the policy curve. But we are looking at it because the plus up to 600 above the state levels, uh, everyone, all sides of the spectrum have acknowledged that that is a disincentive to go back to work. So we want to promote work. We don't want to obstruct work. And, you know, we're seeing the economy gradually in phases reopen in May and June. These are the transition months. We're actually seeing some glimmers of hope amidst all the hardship and uh, heartbreak. We're seeing some glimmers of hope on the economy. The states are opening up. The businesses are opening up. We're going to get a lot more of it in June. And we just want to make sure that we do what we can to have healthy businesses and to have a healthy workforce and get people back to work. You know, Kelly, one, one side point here on this, as you know, with these unemployment claims and with the jobs numbers monthly, a lot of it, maybe as much as 75 percent of it, uh, looked like uh, temporary layoffs. Now, you can't be sure, but that's the way it was reported yeah. in the BLS surveys. If that is true or if that is nearly true, then we may see folks coming back to work faster than we might have thought, let's say, a month or six weeks ago. That's the thing that troubles the Biden campaign. They're they're worried about a strong economic rebound. And in fact, uh, there are concerns among Republicans right now that an economic rebound is necessary for the president's reelection. And there are concerns internally that Republicans may push reopening too soon and the virus rebounds and we go back into shutdown. I don't think we will. I I think people are done with shutdowns. I, I don't think psychologically the American public is willing to do that. Uh, Now, getting people back to work when they're getting $600 a week unemployment is problematic. Senator Rob Portman as well spoke on this. Well, well, I'm willing to take a look at anything that gets people back to work. You know, I think that we need to provide incentives for work. And again, what I'm hearing from small businesses here in Ohio is they're starting to get moving again, but they're having a tough time getting workers. And the employment situation is going to be key to getting this economic recovery going. The workplace needs to be safe. That's that's for sure. And, and our program would be optional. It's not something people uh, would be required to take. It, it would be something I think a lot of people would take advantage of. Essentially paying people more to go back to work is kind of a bonus by the federal government to go back into the office rather than stay home. By the way, are, do you love this? So I don't know what that sound was uh, while Rob Portman, it sounds like something was, was scraping across his microphone while he was talking. And earlier with Zuckerberg, you could hear background noise. It's just so funny. And, and everybody doing these things from home now. I had a, a senator actually reach me the other day 
asking what I use for my home uh, Facebook live streaming setup that he wanted to do something like that in his office. And he was worried about uh, the background noise and stuff. And I told him, other than when I have the the guy with the weed, with the with the leaf blower standing on my front porch right by the window, normally it's okay once I close the doors to my office. Uh, you, you can't really hear a lot, but even then occasionally you can get stuff. That That is the downside. Like today I'm in the studio. It's so quiet in the studio. And at home, when I take my headphones off, I can hear my kids. Uh, and I've got soundproof doors, but I can still kind of hear some of the noise coming through. And with these people doing these, these things from home, you can see the like the 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 workers in the background cutting the grass or whatever is g- scraping across the microphone or hear the refrigerator in the background or, or kids screaming. It's, it's somewhat endearing. I, I, I do think that with Zuckerberg, he should let his kids run around in the background. So uh, he, he looks even more hum- human and humane. Uh, fighting the parody that some people try to paint him as. Some of this stuff, I was I was actually, you know, Chris Burns with Dynamic Money, I uh, was talking to him the other day. He said he's done two client calls the last week where his daughter, he's got a young daughter, ran in and, and insisted on sitting on his lap, and it's just kind of become the new normal these days. Uh, speaking of sponsors, talking about PPP, this is a great time to remind you about First Liberty Building and Loan down in Noonan. If you need the payroll protection program, you might want to reach out to them. There is still money in the program. They are still able to get people into the program. They cannot guarantee it, y'all. That No bank, no financial institution can guarantee access to the payroll protection program. But they're, they've got a really good track record of helping people. They're good friends of mine. The Frost family has been doing this since the early 90s, helping uh, small and mid-sized businesses become large businesses and get them access to capital. Right now, they're really invested in trying to help people get into the PPP program. They're making it easy for you. If you need into the payroll protection program, what you need to do is go to their website. It's firstlibertyga.com. There's an apply now button. And if you click it, you can actually fill out the application online. And they've got people in the office to process it the moment you hit submit. What they tell me to tell you is to get your uh, quarterly filings for verifying your payroll taken care of so that uh, you can get in as quickly as possible. But if you need it, reach out to them. The website, again, it's firstlibertyga.com. They're glad to help you. They can't guarantee it, but they'll do their best to get you in. Oh, my. I, I got to. We, we've got a segue out of the political this story. Wow. Uh, men hired for an adult fantasy broke into the wrong house. In a, <laughs> This is from the BBC. In an adult fantasy gone wrong. Two men with machetes entered the wrong house in New South Wales, Australia, before quickly realizing their error. One of them has now been acquitted of entering a home armed with a weapon in July 2019, Australian media report. They had been hired to carry out a client's fantasy of being tied up in his underwear and uh, rubbed with a broom. The judge concluded the facts of the case are unusual. The role play was arranged over Facebook by a man uh, in Griffin, New South Wales, who provided his address. Uh, he was willing to pay $5,000 Australian dollars if it was really good, the judge said. However, the client moved 30 miles away and did not tell the two men. They entered a house on the original street of the original address when the resident noticed a light on his kitchen at 6.15 in the morning. He assumed it was a friend who came by daily to make morning coffee. When the men called out the name of their client, the resident turned on the light and removed a sleep apnea mask he was wearing. It was then he saw them standing above his bed with the machetes, which they appeared to have brought as props for the role play. 
When they realized their error, one of the pair said, sorry, mate, and shook his hand and left. <laughs> the, cl- the two men then drove to the correct address where the client noticed one man had a great big knife in his trousers and asked him to leave the weapons in their car. The client then cooked bacon, eggs, and noodles, and a short time later, the police arrived at the property, found the machetes in the car, and arrested the hired pair. The judge ruled the evidence did not suggest the men's actions were intentional. They carried the machetes either as a prop or something to use in that fantasy. The fantasy was unscripted, and there was discretion as to how it would be carried out. A lawyer for Terrence Leroy, one of the accused, said it was a commercial agreement to to tie up and rub a semi-naked man in his underpants with a broom. <laughs> Entry was, was not with intent to intimidate. Wow. Man. How would you like to be named Terrence Leroy? And when people put it in Google to find out, it's like, he did what? <laughs> like, nope, nope. That's the Australian one, not me. I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why? 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 why who? Why? Who wants to? There was a story the other day about a man who was arrested somewhere, I, I want to say in Wisconsin or something. He had broken into a Target distribution facility, I believe, and had um, pleasured himself with a thousand pair of shoes. I guess he was trying to find a soulmate. Um, he literally did he, – he had a foot fetish. Who – these people need psychological help. Um, that's just – that's bizarre. Um I, I, y'all, I got nothing. But there's just something else that just doesn't add up in the story. So they 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 show up at the wrong house, and then they get the correct address and go to the new house 30 miles away. And the client cooks some bacon, eggs, and noodles. Did they not tie him up and and take out the brew? I I I got no idea. This this is okay. We'll move back into other stuff. (laughs) When we come back, there's other news out there, including the vice president of the United States is returning today to Atlanta to tie up everybody's traffic like last week. Uh, But the purpose is different this week. Well, traffic in the Atlanta area has suddenly gone in the pooper thanks to the arrival of Vice President Pence again in Dobbins Air Force Base. But he's here for a different reason than last week. So he was here last Friday to sit down with business uh, restaurant owners and talk about uh, reopening restaurants in Georgia and how that's going. And he wants to do a roundtable today at Dobbins Air Force Base uh, with business owners uh, who are, are slowly reopening their businesses. He'll do that. But the primary reason that he is here today is different. He's actually here. There's a memorial service uh, for Ravi Zacharias today in Alpharetta. Now, when he was here last Friday, he made a stop in uh, with uh, Congressman Doug Collins to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and uh, paid his respects to the staff there and to Ravi Zacharias's family. And he is today uh, showing up to go to the memorial service, and then we'll also work in this business roundtable discussion at Dobbins before going home. He should be out earlier today in the Atlanta area than he was on Friday, but still going to be wrecked. I got to tell you guys, so when I was gone last Friday, I had intended to take the day off and have a four-day weekend, 
but got invited to get an exclusive interview with the vice president last Friday at the Waffle House headquarters. So I did. Uh, drove up, uh, left the house about 9, got up there, had lunch at Waffle House, and then went over to the Waffle House headquarters, hung out for the day, uh, saw the restaurant roundtable, then interviewed him. Traffic was a wreck. I actually went to a restaurant. I did. I went to a restaurant for dinner and headed west on 285 north of Atlanta was fine. But traffic was blocked up on 75 northbound and 285 eastbound on the north side of the perimeter in Atlanta because the vice president's motorcade. When, so when the, I did not know this until the president and the vice president came to Atlanta for the um, for the discussion about uh, getting black voters to support the president, I, I I didn't know that when the president and the vice president are together, they don't give the vice president a fancy motorcade. I thought they both always got it, but nope. When when the president and the vice president are together, the president gets the fancy motorcade, and the vice president gets stuck in traffic. When the vice president comes by himself, he gets a full presidential motorcade. Now I've been in one of these before. It's been a long time. Uh, but back when I was in college, I got to – it was uh, Bob Dole and Jack Kemp. Bob uh, Jack Kemp came through Macon, Georgia. I got to drive in the motorcade uh, with him. They had become the nominees. They were campaigning through Georgia, trying to bring Georgia into the Republican camp. And they stopped in Macon, uh, went to the Bears' Den, and I was the lead car behind the presidential limo. I got to drive – Ed Fulner, who was uh, Jack Kemp's chief of staff at the time, was the Heritage Foundation president and taken time off to do Kemp's campaign. And so I got to drive the minivan, and it was impressive. So what happens is the the police – if you've never seen one of these – the police get ahead of the motorcade. They know the time the motorcade is supposed to leave, and they block all the traffic. They block all the on-ramps on the interstate, so, so you can't get onto the interstate. And they clear out the entire interstate on that side. They don't do the other side's traffic, typically. They only do the side of the interstate the vice president's going to be on or the president's going to be on. They clear it out, and so the president has an unobstructed path. Every And, and they get it in place well before the car is moving so that there's there's no pause. You just go. And it's a, they use a lot of state police. They use local police. They use motorcycles. They use cars. They block the path of everybody. They clear the entire route so they can move forward. Now, a lot of times the president will come with a helicopter and so he can fly over it and not have to worry about it. But the last time the president came to Georgia, he had a motorcade. The vice president now these two times having a big motorcade. And it just is wherever they go, it's a, it completely ties up traffic. Uh, down in Macon, when the vice president came to endorse um, um, Brian Kemp. They asked me to emcee the event. Uh, this was when this was in the Cagle Kemp runoff. The Kemp campaign asked if I would come be the emcee of the event, and they told me I had to get there super early because when the vice presidential uh, motorcade came in, he was landing at the Middle Georgia Regional Airport. He wasn't landing at Robbins Air Force Base, uh, but Middle Georgia Regional Airport, and then would come up, and all the traffic would be blocked off, and it was a, it was just a mess. It took me forever to get home because even after the vice president left, uh, traffic was terrible. So, yeah, he's in Atlanta today, mostly for Ravi Zacharias. Now, uh, Kelly Leffler is in the news today. She is donating her salary. She's donating it to a bunch of Georgia charities, which is a nice thing for her to do. I suspect the way this is going to be read uh, is is cynical by some people. But let me read you the story from Tia Mitchell in the AJC. 
Checks of $3,800 each began arriving at various Georgia nonprofits in mid-March, just as many were contemplating the impact the coronavirus pandemic would have. It was just a nice surprise, said Jeff Breedlove, a spokesman for the Georgia Council of Substance Abuse. He and his colleagues waited to see whether the person who sent the donation, uh, Kelly Leffler, would reach out. When they didn't hear from her, they assumed she wanted to keep the gift private. Other nonprofits contacted by the AJC said the same. None had prior knowledge that the donations representing Leffler's Senate salary were coming or received an explanation of why they were chosen. Leffler faced challenges. The money she donated to the CDC Foundation helped with COVID-19 response, and the Second Harvest of South Georgia put the contribution it received toward middle uh, meal distribution for families. The donations to the Georgia Council of Substance Abuse help provide virtual support group meetings, including in Spanish. The organization has 29 local affiliates that work to keep programming during the shelter in place. And Leffler's donation uh, reinforced other lawmakers that the type of work deserves government funding. Breedlove was a Republican strategist working as the chief of staff for DeKalb County Commissioner when drug addiction temporarily derailed his career in 2016. For one of the senators to symbolically say, I believe in recovery, that's a message that is being sent to the congressional delegation. That's a message being sent to the governor and to the General Assembly. Leffler uh, has a congressional pay of $174,000. She's giving it all to charity. Uh, she has not, uh, she made good on her word without fanfare. Her team shared the list of recipients after the AJC inquired. So that's good here because Leffler, for example, has gotten criticism of an ad campaign talking about how she flew those Georgians home from Florida. But in this one, she didn't tell anybody about it. And that's a big key here for a lot of people who are concerned. Leffler did not tell anyone she was donating her salary. She did not tell any of these charities it was her. She did not reach out to any of them by phone to play it up. And the only reason that there is a news story on it is because some of the charitable organizations were so surprised that by word of mouth it got to a reporter and the reporter started digging. And only after the reporter started digging did Leffler confirm it, which is good. Uh, letting private charity continue to be private is something you want to see. It makes it more authentic. It Because it, I know some people some people are going to look at this and they're going to say, oh, this is just Kelly Leffler. She, she's trying to get reelected by, by doing this and say, oh, what a good person Kelly Leffler is. And really, she's just doing it to get elected. But it, it actually means something, I think, when you – um, you, you, you're doing it privately, and the only way the reporters find out is because the actual charity started talking about it. Uh, let, let me read you some more. Uh, Leffler has kept her salary donations close to the vest. Some of the organizations that received a check, such as the Georgia FFA Foundation and the 4-H Foundation, were already familiar to Leffler. Others she learned about while carrying out her duties. One example is the Tubman Museum and how important culturally and historically their work is in Macon. Uh, Leffler wanted to support and wanted to highlight their work. Executives representing the statewide and, and Atlanta arms of the American Red Cross met with Leffler a few weeks before their donation arrived. They shared how the Red Cross participates in disaster response. Those executives wondered whether the conversation influenced Leffler. The development director of Wellspring Living, which provides housing and resource for human trafficking victims, recognized the senator's name when she sat down to write a thank you note. The money from Leffler went towards assessing the facility for teens. 
A second round of 10 checks was mailed out in early May that included the Georgia Council for the Blind, various food banks, a nonprofit that builds custom homes for injured veterans, and a Southwest Georgia hospital. Five of the 20 organizations receiving a share of Leffler's salary are an anti-abortion pregnancy center, are our anti-abortion pregnancy centers. Such facilities have been accused of presenting misinformation to women who may not know in advance uh, that terminating their pregnancy won't be one of their options. That's actually you, you listen, I, 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 I want to spend a moment here in highlighting this because I, I think it's very relevant because I, I, I know the criticism. I was one of the people who criticized her. Uh, saying, listen, if you're going to do this sort of stuff, do it privately. Don't don't read ads bragging about it. And that's what she did here. The only way that we know the story from the AJC is because a couple of the charitable organizations that got the money started talking about it. And so then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reached out to Leffler and asked if they could be provided a list of the entities she gave money to. And uh, her office ultimately agreed to send them that list. So good for her for keeping it private and not making a big deal about it, but good for the AJC as well for highlighting this. Uh, that that's that's a worthwhile cause. I I still I still have some concerns and questions about her campaign. Uh, and I, I it is notable though the White House. There was a story two weeks ago. The White House was concerned about Kelly Loeffler's campaign, and those stories seem to be going away now that the Justice Department has cleared her of the insider trading allegations. It's probably time to figure out a way to get her more publicly out on the campaign trail. And I don't know how you go about doing that in a pandemic. That's one of the frustrating things for all the candidates. Like, for example, I'll tell you, um, up in the 14th Congressional District— I have uh, I volunteered to do a call for Kevin Cook, who's running for Congress, uh, and I like Kevin Cook. Uh, no disrespect to any of the other candidates, but but Cook has a record, and it's a good conservative record. It is a record where he has stood up to David Ralston. He stood up to the Republicans on spending. He has stood up to the Republicans on a host of issues on bad public policy. He has stood up for the conservative side. Now, I realize there are other people in the race who are conservatives, and I, I don't want to – again, this is not about them. I just look at a guy like Kevin Cook who is willing to stand up to his own side and say, you know what, uh, this is someone we need. It's like Matt Gertler running in the 9th Congressional District. They've stood up to their own side. The Speaker of the House hates their guts because they've stood up against bad public policy that wasn't conservative in the Georgia House. And so they've made a lot of enemies, and those enemies are not conservatives. And I think that when a conservative is willing to stand up in the state legislature and say to their own Republican colleagues, this is not conservative, I can't support it, that's the sort of guy you want. And so I did a robocall for – and I know everybody – I hate getting the robocalls. But how else do you campaign right now? How do you campaign? You can't go door to door. You don't want to spread the virus. They won't let you go door to door. You can't hold campaign rallies. The president wants to hold campaign rallies. He's not able to hold campaign rallies. How do you do this? Well, phone calls, phone banks. I'll tell you, if I were a candidate running for office these last few weeks, I'll tell you what I'd be doing. The 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 election's not until June 9th. A lot of people did absentee ballots, but there are a million absentee ballots still outstanding in the state. Some people will show up on election day. So here's what you do. Go get church directories. People who go to church tend to vote Republican. People who go to church tend to actually be active in primaries. Go get your church directories and then get some friends of yours. Get a local business that has access to a bunch of phones like a, a law firm. Find a lawyer in a law firm and organize a phone bank. 
and get people calling their friends. Don't let them do it at home if you can help it. Get them, get them somewhere else. They don't have to all be in the same room. They can be in individual offices. They can socially distance. But get them somewhere outside of their house so they're not distracted and give them a phone list and a, and a short little script. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm calling for candidate X. Uh, I, I'm hoping you'll vote for him. Get people from within churches to call members of their churches and say, hey, I'm voting for this guy. You should vote for this guy. Uh, the, the church phone bank chain is one of the most important things to do at a time like this. And, and I'm not making that up. Uh, we used to do this on campaigns, and it was always very successful. Every candidate I ever was able to do this with won. You get your your friends and supporters and volunteers to get out their church directories and see if they can recruit two or three people from the church. And then you all divide up the list of the people in the church who you know are in the area, and you call them and you say, hey, uh, friend, haven't seen you in church. Sorry we can't meet in church, but I wanted to tell you I'm helping this guy run for Congress or run for the state house, run for the state senate, and I really hope you'll consider voting for him as well. Here's why. And you do that. Because you can't knock on people's doors right now. You can't hold campaign rallies right now. You can't do any of that stuff, and everybody hates the robocalls. So do live phone banks with people from churches calling other members of their churches, and that tends to work really, really well. If you can do it, get those church directories out. Now, some people will have already voted absentee ballot. And so all you're going to do is ask them, have you already voted? Yeah, I've already voted. Okay. Well, never mind then, but if they haven't voted – now, now one thing you don't you want to be careful for, you, you do these fold banks, don't call people, uh, have you already voted? Yes, I have. Who'd you vote for? You never want to do that. You're not supposed to do that. But there are ways to still campaign. It's just harder, which is one way way I've, I've stepped up for people like Matt Gertler and people for Kevin Cook and, and Rich McCormick and others because I want to help them get elected. They're good people. I want to help them. Uh, and I'm doing what I can, and I realize robocalls are annoying, but they're also pretty effective. Hello there. It is 53 after the hour. I am your host, Eric Erickson. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And uh, the call screening, let's see. I, sorry about that. It froze on me. Here we go. Randy and Rome, you've been waiting patiently, and I'm sorry the call screening program froze on me for a minute. That's not a problem. How are you doing this morning, Eric? I'm good. How are you? I am well. It's a beautiful day. Yes, it is. I have a, a question, comment, kind of rolled in one here, uh, two of them, actually. The first one is about all the, the, the COVID-19 thing. They're showing all of these people testing positive throughout the state. And I know people are, there's still people dying and there are people, but around here, I don't see anybody getting sick. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to know you can test positive. You may have been exposed. You may have had it. There's all these things going on. The tests are giving false positives. And that's the only number they seem to really focus that and people dying. And that's, that's that you can't make that part up. I don't think Uh, there's maybe some question. But the the positives, I keep seeing this, hearing this, but I don't know of anybody getting sick. Even people that uh, 73-year-old person testing positive, the results were 10 days late getting in, but 
they never became ill and nobody around them became yeah, ill. You know, it's funny you should say that. Uh, there, there's a restaurant group down in Macon, the Moonhanger Group. They own some of the more popular restaurants in town, uh, the Rookery and stuff. They decided to open up and they got all their employees tested, which was above and beyond the call. And, and none of their employees were sick. Uh, none of them had fever. None of them had any symptoms at all. So they decided, well, we, we won't wait for the test. We'll go on and open up. So they opened up and the day after they opened up, the test came back and multiple of their employees tested positive for the virus. But none of them had symptoms. None of them had fever or anything. Uh, and were the and tests. never got symptoms, Yes. They? No, they never did, apparently. Um, and we're seeing more and more of this, which, again, is is suggesting that maybe in a lot of cases the, the virus isn't as bad. Or there is a suggestion in some of the, the data out there that if you have a very minimal exposure, you're like walking past someone who's infected in the grocery store, you may get the virus. Right. And that's how you become asymptomatic. Is, is it such a mild case? Uh, now, I will tell you that where the big increases are coming, Randy, is in nursing homes. Uh, it's the confined right. nursing home communities where we're yes. seeing these big increases. So even, for example, in Fulton and Gwinnett County in the metro Atlanta area where you're seeing these increases, it typically is in nursing homes or it's in areas of high migrant worker population. It's not in your neighborhood right. and mine. Uh, I actually right. I, I know some people in Macon who have gotten the virus. Uh, two of them actually had really bad cases of it. Uh, but I only know those two or two or three people. Now, a lot of people are saying, hey, I, I got the virus, but I don't really know. Right. Any. My eight, my radio agent, though, was in ICU uh, and wow. with the virus. Uh, he and his wife both got it and, and was terrible. Uh, so I know I actually know a lot of people uh, that was I guess it was last month. They they were both in ICU. Okay. Uh, in fact, they didn't think he was going to survive, and he did. And then we, we've we got a family friend That's who died blessing. of the virus a couple of weeks ago. Um, but yeah, I had, we had one die sometime back early, very early on. Yeah. Very early on. It seems like right now it doesn't – it's just the hot weather, the life the, – the, the shelf life of a virus. Yeah. Um, all of those things are playing in here, and um, I just – I think we, this this state and our leaders have done a really good yeah. thing to open up and do things. It doesn't mean people are not going to die. People, 60,000 plus die of the flu, like you've said over and over, many others have said. But it's still, we, we, we can't become enslaved to something like this. Yeah, particularly uh, when it's, it's not going to go away. No, and not until we, and but the flu doesn't go away. Right. No, none, of, none of the things go away. You just learn how to live with, treat. And do the best you can. But then uh, people who are prone to something are still going to get things. You can't yeah. stop it completely. It just doesn't. We can't worship life. We have to worship the creator of life. Amen to that. Look, and, I got to let you go there. I I, I got a hard break. But, it, man. man, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks very much. You're right. Uh, we can't live in fear of a virus, uh, particularly if we believe in the sovereignty of God. You, you, you can't. Uh, and, you know, I've got concerns. My wife goes in for her lung scans on Tuesday for her lung cancer. I, I, I've got personal concerns. Uh, but I don't think we need to disrupt the whole state over my personal concerns. There are certainly things that we can do in our family to be cautious. But got to think about it. Ah, uh, I ordered one of those Blackstone griddle things, and I keep waiting for it to ship, and it, it hasn't shipped yet. I'm starting to get frustrated. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. That's the show I'm on right now. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, this hour of the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan from Noonan. If you need uh, to get into the payroll protection program for your employees in business, please reach out to them at FirstLibertyGA.com. FirstLibertyGA.com, you can apply online for 
PPP, and they will help you get into the program. They can't guarantee it, but they will do what they can to get you in. Uh, so thanks to First Liberty Building and Alone for sponsoring the program. I was not going to go back to this topic, but I now have to go back to the topic, given what has happened. Uh, let me set the stage for you. This morning, Twitter decided to moderate uh, one of the president's comments relating to the situation in Minnesota. And the president is obviously not happy about what Twitter did. Twitter put a little disclaimer. I'm trying to find the picture again. Yes, here it is. This tweet violated the Twitter rules about glorifying violence. However, Twitter is determined it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain accessible. Here's what the president tweeted. These thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Waltz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Now, um, that I don't read that as glorifying violence. I read that as the president's going to step in. But, hey, uh, the editorialist at Twitter decided otherwise. Well... So the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, who is the man on whose side Twitter must stay in his good graces, he has taken to Twitter this morning and he has tweeted out serious question for Twitter. Do these tweets from Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, violate Twitter rules about glorifying violence? Here are the tweets from Khomeini. The Zionist regime is a deadly cancerous growth and a detriment to this region. It will undoubtedly be uprooted and destroyed. Then the shame will fall on those who put their facilities at the service of normalization of relations with this regime. The elimination of the Zionist regime does not mean the massacre of the Jewish people. The people of Palestine should hold a referendum. Any political system they vote for should govern in all of Palestine. The only remedy until the removal of the Zionist regime is firm, armed resistance. The struggle to free Palestine is jihad in the way of God. Victory in such a struggle has been guaranteed because the person, even if killed, will receive one of the two excellent things. Also, crimes against Palestine trouble any human's conscience and inspire opposition. We will support and assist any nation or any group anywhere who opposes and fights the Zionist regime, and we do not hesitate to say this. Hashtag fly the flag. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a good, great question for Twitter. If Twitter is going to put a notation at the top of the president's tweets that his tweet violates a Twitter policy and glorifying violence, why, why not on those? And there are plenty of others out there. Uh, there are blue check marked activists uh, saying that Minneapolis needs to be burned down because of the George Floyd situation. Do Should we get those as well? Uh, it, it, this seems very clearly designed to go after the president of the United States and no one else. And if they are going to go after uh, him and no one else, then they're in for a serious, serious trouble, I would think, uh, for going after the leader of the free world and not going after all sorts of tyrants. Now, Young America's Foundation has sent me something. Uh, they, they actually just sent it to me while I was talking. As I'm talking about the George Floyd situation in, in Minneapolis, uh, let me reroute my sound here so that you can hear this uh, from Ronald Reagan. 
The crisis we are facing today does not require of us the kind of sacrifice that Martin Treptow and so many thousands of others were called upon to make. It does require, however, our best effort and our willingness to believe in ourselves and to believe in our capacity to perform great deeds, to believe that together, with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. Man, that guy could speak. Um, yeah, you know, I, let, let me talk about campaign 2020 for a minute. Not not to, to frustrate you or depress you. Matthew Continetti from the Washington Free Beacon has been one of the best voices on the age of Trump. He, he's really diagnosed it, I think. Uh, why did people turn to the president? Why did people who express certain values go with the guy who never seemed to have those problems and have those values? Uh, and he's got this this post up and the headline is Trump in trouble. President Trump was disappointed. Bad weather on Wednesday forced a delay in SpaceX's planned launch of the Dragon spacecraft, robbing the president of a prize photo opportunity. He plans to attend the next launch window scheduled for May 30th at 3.22 p.m. Eastern time. But the spoiled visit to Florida punctuated another week of foreboding news from the campaign trail. The coronavirus has left President Trump without his signature issue, the economy, and without his preferred venue, the rally. The bump in his approval rating as Americans rallied around the flag at the outset of the crisis is gone. Assessments of Trump's performance during the pandemic look a lot like his approval rating overall, polarized by party and upside down. He continues to trail Joe Biden in both national and swing state polls. The margins are narrow, but they are consistent. President Trump has not been ahead in any live interview national poll conducted this year. Yet an aura of invincibility surrounds the president. This is why the same polls that show him losing to Biden also show that the public expects him to win. It is why betting markets favor him, too. After all, the story goes, Trump accomplished the impossible in 2016. He defeated the second most unpopular candidate in American history. He was number one against all odds. Why can't he do it again? The president's imagination, ruthlessness, and guile, the shortcomings of his uninspiring and slightly out-of-it opponent, and the Teflon quality of this campaign have lulled the public and the GOP into a sense of complacency. Sure, things look bad, but Trump will find a way out of it. He always does. Well, maybe not this time. The 2020 election looks more and more like a contest between luck and precedent. On one side is President Trump's incredible run of good fortune. On the other side is the weight of history. Consider every president reelected since Mr. Gallup's first poll in 1935 enjoyed at least one day and often several where his approval ratings were above 50 percent. This is something President Trump has never experienced. Not since 1940 has a president been reelected with a double digit unemployment rate. Nor has a president been reelected with an unemployment rate two or more points higher than when he entered office. Unemployment was 15% in April 2020 is expected to rise at least a while longer. It was 5% in July 2017. The recovery will need to have the trajectory of an Elon Musk rocket for unemployment to fall less than 7% by November 3rd. That is when America will hold its 59th presidential election. In all but five of the previous 58 contests, the same man won both the popular and electoral votes. The fact that two of the exceptions occurred in the past 20 years has distorted our perspective. We begin to consider it not only possible but probable that President Trump could win re-election without winning the popular vote. History suggests that what is possible is also unlikely. 
Re-election was a prize awarded to just one of the four men before Trump who entered office on the basis of the Electoral College alone. John Quincy Adams lost to Andrew Jackson in the rematch of 1828. Rutherford B. Hayes did not run for a second term in 1880. Benjamin Harrison lost to Grover Cleveland in the rematch of 1892. The exception was George W. Bush, who defeated John Kerry in both the popular and electoral votes in 2004. Bush, like Trump, faced an unexpected crisis in his first term. His decisive and compassionate leadership during the 9-11 attacks and their aftermath was an important factor in his reelection. Voters for whom terrorism was the most important issue backed Bush by a 72-point margin, according to the exit polls. And at that time, majorities approved of the war in Iraq, 51%, and considered it part of the war on terror, 55%. Bush's approval rating in the exit poll was 53%. In the May 27th Reuters-Ipsos poll, the public disapproved of President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic while backing him on the economy and jobs. His job approval was 41%. In the May 21st Fox poll, it was 44%. Nowhere close to where it has to be to win a second term. And so, America waits for Trump to pull a rabbit out of his hat. What might that look like? A stunning economic rebound would bolster the president's strengths and restore confidence in his stewardship. Trump's opponent might delegitimize himself through continued gaffes, a vice presidential selection that frightens more people than it reassures, and debate performances that heighten concerns about age and ability. Something unexpected might happen. The campaign is young, and a wise man once wrote, only an idiot would bet against Donald Trump. Right now, though, Republicans have reason to be worried about November. That, that's Matthew Continetti in the Washington Free Beacon. And he makes a lot of points that I would make, and he does so better because he's a better writer than me. But there's just there, there's something nagging at me. And, and let, me, let me start by telling you what I always tell you, particularly on the campaign trail, what I tell candidates. When I was a campaign manager, I would always give them the same speech. You can, you can fundamentally believe something. You can fundamentally believe something. And you can believe you're right and everyone else is wrong. But know when you are in the minority even when you think you're right. See, there are a lot of people who decide that if, 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 they, if they're convinced of something, then they're convinced everyone else will be convinced of something. And, and oftentimes, in fact, most of the times with some of the best ideas, it's actually the people in the minority um, who have the best ideas. It, it's not the majority. The majority go for the median or the average. They, they don't go for the extraordinary. It's, they're in the minority. And so you need to know when you're in the minority, even when you think you're right. And so you can be in the minority and and definitively believe that you are right, that the country can't tolerate a Joe Biden presidency. I, I'm, I'm with you in that minority. I think a Joe Biden presidency would be bad for a host of reasons. But I think we should recognize we're in the minority, at least right now. Now, we are in – it is May 29th, 2020. We are a long way away from the election. But this is the thing with the president going after Joe Scarborough this week so much on Twitter. Those were opportunities he could have been going after Joe Biden, and he went after the wrong Joe. And there are a lot of Americans, my, my sense is that there are Americans in the majority who are tired of the chaos of the election. They're tired of the chaos that they're dealing with right now. And they don't actually see the president as a stabilizing force right now. They see the president as a chaotic force. And I'm beginning to believe the presidency is going to be won this time 
on the issue of who will bring calm to chaos. And if the president can show it's him, if the president can show a Biden presidency, it would be much more chaotic because he's senile or too far left or too far disruptive to an economic rebound. I think the president wins. But I think if Joe Biden goes out and, and, and says, hey, look, I'm we're, we're this what happened to George Floyd is bad and we can't have rioting, but we can't have a president on Twitter stirring the pot either. Joe Biden has a real opportunity there as well. Joe Biden has an opportunity to tell people that he's going to bring calm into the chaos. I, I really do think whichever one of them can convince Americans that the other will be calm – they win. And, and here's a problem for the Trump campaign in this, and that is that they've had four years. And you can say it's really the media's fault and you can say it's really the less fault. And I tend to agree with you. I think that there's been this ongoing campaign to be disruptive, to cause chaos, and to blame it on Donald Trump. But I think it's kind of working. Know when you're in the minority, even when you think you're right. And, and I think those of us who, who think that the president would be a more calming institutional force after 2020, we're in the minority right now. And people are really just tired of everything. They're tired of the rioting. They're tired of the virus. They're tired of the lockdown. They're tired of the people who won't wear a mask. They're tired of the people demanding you do wear a mask. They're, they're tired of everything. And if you're tired of everything, you're tired of the status quo. And if you're tired of the status quo, you want change. And you're thinking the change surely can't be worse than what we have now. I think it probably can be. But I think a lot of people don't see that, don't don't recognize that. And this is something the president's team is going to have to address if they want to get reelected. Sure hush, Siri. <laughs> the president's team is going to have to figure this out. Siri may not understand it, but, but I hope all of you do that – uh, this The president has the opportunity to win. He's got the advantages of incumbency. But if he can't convince people that he's going to be a calmer force than Biden, I think he's ultimately going to have some trouble when we get closer to November. He's got to be able to change that calm versus chaos dynamic. All right. I, I got to share a funny story. So yesterday I, I sent out a, a version of a croquet mixture, which, which is one of my favorite sandwiches. It's essentially it's it's ham and, and cheese sandwich done in a French style with French sauce with some honey mustard. It's it's good. Um, and, and I I adapted it to the, the King Hawaiian rolls, and it's just it's, it's a good sandwich. I'll, I'll make as an appetizer when we're having people over and stuff. Um, but uh, it, it, it uses Havarti cheese, and I didn't even realize it before I sent it out that the, the spell checker on my computer automatically corrected Havarti to Haverty. So it looks like have some Haverty furniture cheese instead of Havarti. Of course, you know, I've always called Havarti Haverty anyway. And, and people are like, no, you're not eating, you're not eating Haverty, you're eating Havarti. Whatever. I'm not French. <laughs> but the sandwich is good. Just don't use the furniture company. You use actual uh Havarti cheese uh, now, and you're not getting to get a recipe today, uh, but I'll get more to you next week. Van Jones, uh, I, he's commenting on the rioting in, in Minneapolis. He's making some people rather mad. Uh, I need to play you this Van Jones audio. It's not the racist white person who's in the Ku Klux Klan that we have to worry about. It's the white liberal Hillary Clinton supporter walking her dog in Central Park who would tell you right now, she, you know, she, people like that, oh, I don't see race, race is no big deal to me, I see us all as the same, I give to charities. But the minute she sees a black man who she does not 
respect or who she has a slight thought against. She weaponized race like she had been trained by the Aryan nation. A Klan's member could not have been better trained to pick up the police and pick up the, her phone and tell the police it's a black man, African-American man, come get him. So even the most liberal, well-intentioned white person has a, 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 a virus uh, in his or her brain that can be activated at an instant. And so what you're seeing now is a curtain falling away. And those of us who have been burdened by this every minute, every second of our entire lives are fragile right now. We are fragile right now. We are tired. You know, I'm not glad the Amy Cooper story happened. By the way, she she's she's just sounds like a woman who needs a lot of prayer. Um, I, I'm not glad that the Amy Cooper situation happened, but I, I'm. I'm I'm glad that it got seen. Put it to you that way. Because for years I have experienced among white liberals, white progressives, this this whole idea of white guilt and an embrace of white privilege uh and they're so privileged and and on and on and on. But they always mean it about other people. They don't. They don't really want to give up anything themselves. That that racism is bad and and something needs to be done. But but not not to them. But to other people, uh, it needs to happen with other people. And uh, the, you know there are problems in this country. It's a real problem when a a woman in a park is challenged by a man to to put her dog on a leash and her reaction is to call the cops and say a black man is is threatening me in the park because she knew what would happen she she knew it if she said it was a black man doing this to her what could happen and she's a a Hillary Clinton supporting uh donating to left-wing causes liberal who doesn't believe she's got a problem, doesn't believe she's a problem, doesn't believe that she believes racism's a problem and, and she's willing to give all the, all the right causes. But it's this rank hypocrisy on the left when they start lecturing people on white privilege. It's really, it, it's infuriating to me because I, I, I've been around enough to know that in many, many, many circumstances, but not all, you do you can't have an advantage by being white when it comes to dealing with law enforcement, when it comes to dealing with with the judiciary, when it comes to dealing with jobs, when it comes to dealing with walking about in society. It's, it's just true, but not everywhere. Poor Appalachian area. We we always forget about poor Appalachians because they're mostly white, uh, and and we forget about the police violence that happens to white people. Clay Travis on, on Twitter yesterday was documenting a bunch of, of people killed. In fact, it turns out that per capita, more white people are killed by the police uh, than, than black people. But if, if we're going to deal with race and the lecturers on race, we should recognize that many of the people lecturing us on race when they let their guard down really are hypocrites. By the way, just as a reminder, if you do text the word dated to 33777, you'll get back the Georgia Department of Public Health uh, website along with the IHME modeling. You know, it's been a while since I've gone to the IHME model. We should see it, it is getting more criticism 
the IHME model. It's the one the White House and the governor's office here in Georgia rely on, and it's getting more and more criticism because of um, it isn't maintaining legacy information. Now, this is really interesting, pulling this up. Um, The IHME modeling does show a little bit of a projected bump to cases in Georgia. It's not really a trend upward, even as testing ramps up. And what is also very interesting is that the IHME modeling had revised its uh, daily number count. Remember, it had revised it down uh, August 1st to around 18 or so, and then it went up to about 40-some cases in August, uh, August 2nd, and now it's back down to 18, with 17 on August 3rd, 16 on August 4th, uh, 174 cases on July 1st. It, it, so it, it, even with this slight uptick in cases in Georgia, it's actually showing a decline in, in the state. It, it's showing a decline in, in deaths. It's showing a decline in overall mortality by August 4th, 2,544 people potentially uh, dead of the virus in the state of Georgia. It's showing we're not going to max out hospital capacity. We're not going to max out ventilators. We're not going to max out ICUs. This is all really good news. We are, we are charting in the right direction and that's really good news. Now, I got to tell you, um, I, am, I, I am deeply concerned. I, I want to go back to the Minnesota situation. I want to play you this audio from Bakari Sellers on CNN. Bakari Sellers, one of the, the uh, progressive-leaning pundits on CNN, listen to this. And the world finds out that the Minneapolis law enforcement, I know there's a difference between state police and city police, etc. However, law enforcement in Minneapolis had the audacity and the utter gall on national TV to arrest a, a reporter of color while doing his job and following command. But the law enforcement officer who put his knee in the back of the neck of a man and, and choked him for eight minutes is still free to walk around. That is what we're talking about, the justice system in America looking like. And, you know, we haven't yet, we haven't even started talking about the tweets of the president of the United States adding just that much fire uh, to the scenario. And so um, this is what this is what Trump's America looks like now. And this is the problem. And, and this is the fierce sense of urgency that many people of color have. And what you're seeing, the that that is the pain that many people of color are seeing. And that pain is demonstrated by the inequities of justice that we saw this morning on TV. I got to tell you, I, I realize that these are partisan progressives we're talking about, but it just makes me turn off altogether when I hear them blaming the president for this stuff, because I, I distinctly remember uh, Ferguson, Missouri happening under Barack Obama, a number of these situations happening under Barack Obama. Was that Donald Trump's America too? Was that Donald Trump's America? Because I, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you, uh, making this about Donald Trump when this stuff has been going on before Donald Trump just makes me not want to take it seriously. And I know it, it needs to be taken seriously, but it is, it's just, it's that you can't, help but partisan make this a partisan thing that should bother you 
it, it bothers me that these people um, they, they want to weaponize this stuff. They want to part, make it partisan against the president. They're not letting the opportunity go to waste. They're not letting the crisis go to waste. But when you're taking something that happened when George Bush was president, when Bill Clinton was president, when uh, when when Barack Obama was president, and you're saying, "Oh, this is Donald Trump's America. This is this is Trump. Trump's egging this all. This was happening before Trump." And it may make it easy to dismiss the fact that it happened under your precious Barack Obama, but it was happening under his administration as well. And that's something that you need to be mindful of. Now, I, I wanna I wanna switch gears because this story bothers me. And I want you to be bothered by it. I'm going to unburden myself to you people on the phones. And, and and I'll take your phone calls, by the way. 404-872. Nope, that's the wrong phone number. 877-973-7425. I want to talk to you about uh Mika Stouffer. Mika Stouffer and James Stouffer. Mika Stouffer and James Stouffer, they are influencers. I was on a phone call the other day, and they kept referring to me as a personality. And they said, do you, do you get upset when someone calls you a personality? You know what my actual my actual job description is? Talk show host. I've been called a talk show host. I've been called a personality. I've been called a celebrity. I've been called a talking head, a pundit. Uh, a, a political commentator. I've been called a lot of bad stuff too. I don't really care. But the one that bugs me is influencer. So you, you've got a YouTube channel or an Instagram account and you got a blue check mark and you're an influencer. Well, there are these influencers, Mika Stouffer and her husband, James, they have built their lives on YouTube. They have a YouTube career, uh, hundreds of thousands of followers. And they adopted an autistic toddler from China and they chronicled their lives with the autistic toddler. They even got endorsement deals. The couple began sharing videos about their family life in 2014 and Ms. Stouffer's own YouTube channel grew to more than 700,000 subscribers. In July of 2016, they announced plans to adopt a toddler from China and that they were considering adopting a second child from Uganda or Ethiopia. The adoption agency told them that their child, Huxley, would have brain damage, and she wrote an article about it saying that that God softened their hearts and they decided to go with it. They said revenue from sponsored videos would pay for the adoption. They asked followers to donate $5 towards supporting their son's needs. They promised to write the donor's names in a baby book. One video of the family going to China to meet two-year-old Huxley was extremely popular with 5.5 million views on YouTube. They have transitioned their child Huxley to a new family. After doing the endorsement deals, after getting the money, after asking people to help them, after knowing the child was going to have disabilities, they've decided they can't handle it. They, they can't handle it. Uh, sometime towards the end of 2019, Huxley stopped appearing in videos. And on Tuesday, they posted an update in which they explained that Huxley had been given permanently to another family for the sake of his emotional well-being. 
The adoption agency had not given them the full picture of his health, they said. Doctors in the U.S. said he would now need a different fit in his medical needs. I can't explain the amount of effort Mika has put into helping uh, Huxley, Mr. Stouffer said. Some who followed the story for a while commented with messages of support, but others accused them of getting rid of Huxley after making money on his experiences. Others expressed sympathy for him. I, I don't know what the I, I don't know what the story is here. And it could very well be that uh, they got this child from China. They adopt, this child was adopted by them. He's been in the United States for treatment. And now suddenly they're realizing that uh, based on diagnoses of the child, the child actually would do better as a single child. They've got four children already that this child would do better in a different situation with different circumstances in a different family where he was the only child and could be taken care of. That, that could be it. Maybe so. I don't know. But I just I gotta say it's this influencer thing that bothers me that these these people don't have any no you don't know who these people are you don't know who these people are all you know about them is the perfectly manicured life that they display on social media. Their, their perfect photos of their perfect family and, and their perfect wardrobe and their perfect vacations and their perfect Christmas pictures. And it, it, it's really kind of gross seeing the Instagram feed of these people because it's not real and you can tell it's not real. There's a color scheme. There's a you look at my Instagram feed and and my goodness, uh, you see all the all the unhealthy stuff I cook and and my junky house and and uh, the different stuff I have. It is just uh, you could follow me on Instagram at E W Erickson and and I mean you you see life happening. But you look at this and uh, all the pictures are perfectly posed. There's a color scheme that there's actually a, you can tell they use a color palette on Instagram and all the kids are lined up and and on and on we go. And listen, if you're making money off of God bless you. If, if this is the way you've decided to support yourself these days, this is what people do. But I really dislike this whole idea of influencer culture. My, my kids now uh, want Instagram and YouTube. My, My son wants his own YouTube channel. And my daughter is 14 and is actually a really good artist. And, and I don't say that because I'm her dad. I, it actually is true. Um, she is an amazing artist, particularly for a 14-year-old. And she would very much like to sell her paintings on her Instagram or somewhere. She would very much like to do that. And I, I won't let them. I won't let them because I I really genuinely do think that you need to establish yourself in the real world. And they are not at a point of having established themselves in the real world, quite frankly, because they're they're 14 and 11. And I think when you're 14 and 11, uh, you need to learn to live in the real world more than the online world. And I, I think they're on screens enough right now. But there are they've got friends, the, the 11-year-old and the 14-year-old have friends who have social media pages, who have uh, Instagram following, who have uh, followings online. And, and, and why, why can't they have followings online and stuff? Well, because I, I don't want them to be an influencer. I want them to be a person. I don't, don't want them to have carefully posed pictures on Instagram. I, life is messy. 
that should be reflected in their lives, that should be reflected in, in their presence online. You, you shouldn't curate yourself to make yourself something you're not. You shouldn't have a color palette on your on your Instagram feed. You should just have life. That's the whole point of these things. And yet they, these people, these people who are called influencers, that they, they cultivate this image of life being somehow perfect. And frankly, it makes other people feel rather crappy. Because you know darn well this person's life is messy. You, you know their life is not perfect. You know they get in arguments. You know the house is a wreck. You know the kids have, have finger painted with poop on the wall. You know this stuff happens. And yet you never see that part of life. You never see that. It's fake. It, 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 and, and they get some level of influence. This person has 195,000 followers on Instagram and 700,000 followers on YouTube. And she's conveying a reality that doesn't really exist. And it's a reality into which she could bring this autistic child and raise money and get sponsorships for this autistic child from China. And then when it doesn't work out, let someone else take the child. And I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what the story is. That could very well be that the child would be better off somewhere else. And if so, God bless the child. But when you you live by the Instagram influencer fame, you die by the Instagram influencer fame. When you when it's about giving people a portrait of you where they it, it's not who you really are, it's who you curate yourself to be for an audience, and then suddenly the veneer comes off when you do something that I can't believe you would adopt a child and raise money and then give that child away. We're going to burn you to the ground now. The, the whole thing is just this is a, a 21st century product that I think is is really deeply problematic. And in fact, this woman I'm, I'm looking now, it's, it's kind of interesting. She has taken to ha- turning off all of her comments because so many people, let, let me let me read you um, some of these comments. True care, she, she, she puts up this, this piece. This week has been such a learning experience. People can throw some really ugly words around and say completely hurtful and untrue statements, but instead of reacting and getting hurtful right back, I want to step back and learn from that person in that moment. God forgives like no one's business, and just because naturally I want to defend or stand up for my character, it's not necessary. True character is known and does not need to be shown. True character, someone replies, True character means honoring the commitment you made to be a child's forever home as your own biological child. To make yourself the martyr in this situation is absolutely shameful. If you're gonna if you're gonna be a curated personality on social media instead of a real person, don't be shocked when people realize you're a real person, warts and all, and, and come after you. And I just, I, I'm, man, I just, I don't like this phenomenon of influencer. You, you, you can call me a celebrity, a personality, a talk show host, whatever. I, I, I really don't like this whole phenomenon of, of influencers. 
of people who just get these curated personally. They, they, they care. I know someone who has a photographer who follows him around. I know someone. This one's actually better. I know a guy. I didn't realize how he was doing it, but I know a guy who tried to who was trying to turn himself into an, an Instagram influencer, and I kid you not, he would carry around a camera and tripod and set it up and go off and do like hikes and stuff, and it made it look like he had a photographer with him when it was really him. Just life is too short to go through that much trouble to, to make yourself look like you're something that you're not. Hello there. It would help if I actually turned on the microphone button. You know, I have this hard time in studio. I just start talking and it's like, oh, you got to touch the button and turn it on. Yes, I do have to touch the button and turn it on. Um, I am going to be cooking this. So my birthday comes up next week. So it's, it's, so it's one of those things. Um Christy was supposed to have her, her lung scans uh, in the middle of May, and because of the virus, the hospital didn't want her coming, so they put it off until the 2nd. So she has her scans on the 2nd. My birthday's on the 3rd. Uh, it, it'll be a stressful few days, which means I'll cook. And so I will I will send out more recipes on stuff that I've cooked next week. I, I'm waiting for my Blackstone griddle to come in. I ordered one for Blackstone, and it's it, it's delayed and I'm starting to get a little frustrated because I was really hoping to have it this past weekend, and I didn't. And, and now I'm not going to have it this weekend either. But I got my Rectech, so I will. I've got a brisket coming today from Porter Road. It's a, uh, it's a, a I think, 11-pound brisket, which I will be smoking on my Rectech this weekend. I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, we'll be doing some cooking out there. Assuming the weather permits, uh, Christy wants to ride her Harley. I, I want to smoke some meat on the grill. It should be a good time. Now, there is other stuff going on out there, but I'm afraid the Minnesota situation continues to uh, attract the attention. That of the president's fight with Twitter. I, I, I almost think, by the way, I, I get the sense that there are a lot of people in the media who are thinking, my goodness gracious, we finally have something to talk about other than the virus. I've been feeling this way for a while, and I've been very open with you guys that I feel like I've got to cover the virus. I feel like I think I think I've got to cover the virus. And at the same time, I really don't want to cover it. I mean, I'm I'm exhausted of this topic, and it will not go away. And it just comes with the bad economic news, and and so you get riots in in Minneapolis, and suddenly the media's like, "Hey, let's let's cover that." Or you get the president spat with Twitter, and hey, let's cover that. Um, and I I think all of these things are worth covering. Uh, but let's not forget to keep our eye on the prize. There's an election coming in November, and it's really interesting that th- this is the first year in a long time since I've been covering politics where, oddly enough, uh, the media is just not focused at all on the election. And I don't blame them. There's so much other stuff to focus on. There are so many other things to to worry about. But also, at, at the same time, concurrently, that there there is an election on. The, the president and Joe Biden, uh, we've got to deal with the conventions. By the way, the, the Republicans are continuing to think they may come to Georgia instead of North Carolina. Uh, they Basically, they're putting the burden on Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor of, New, of uh, North Carolina, and the mayor of the city of Charlotte to accommodate the president's concerns. The president wants a big convention. 
The president wants people there. He doesn't want people socially distanced. And uh, so the convention is going to come. I'll tell you what, I suspect if the Republicans go anywhere and have a convention like a a normal convention, you're going to have the big media play up the fact that, oh, we're socially distancing and we're in our masks because these Republicans are not. They're going to spread a virus. No proof that there is. ABC News, by the way, has done a detailed analysis of the 18 states that opened the first, including Georgia. And it turns out there has not been a spike in hospitalizations and there's not been a statistic. Statistically significant spike in the virus. That is ABC News reporting that. Now, how much local media attention do you think is going to be given to that story? How much? Um, it is. It it, it 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 genuinely, truly is a story that the media doesn't want to accurately reflect. If they can be part of la resistance. And go after the president. I would kill to have, well, I wouldn't kill. I, I would love to have an honest media in this country. And we just don't have it anymore. And it's so frustrating to me uh, when I see. So there are really good reporters out there across networks. And they're just dragged down by their colleagues. The, the Don Lemon tirade just does CNN a discredit to claim these people are fighting for their liberty by burning down a target. It's just, that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. 